Welcome to the Connect Your Health to Life coaching podcast. I'm your host, Seth Lusk. I'm a master certified self-image coach and empowered health coach with a decade-long background working in the health and wellness industry. If you're anything like me or the clients that I work with, then you're probably struggling with body image, self-image, or confidence issues. You're probably also trying to figure out why it is that you have these amazing desires for living your healthiest and most fulfilling life, but you can't seem to create consistent actions in your life to reflect those desires. So join me as we dive in deep on what it means to live a fulfilled and authentic life. We're going to look from the perspective of an empowered mindset and uncover reasons why you might be what's holding yourself back from living your most fulfilling life. I'm going to break through some of the biggest illusions and myths that we've all been taught to believe along the way. And I'm so excited to have you with me on this journey. So my only question for you is, are you ready to start living your most authentic and fulfilling life once and for all? Then let's get started, shall we? Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. For those of you listening in for the first time, I'm going to say it this week. You picked an interesting episode to listen in on and welcome, welcome. Guys, this week is episode number 40. So for those of you who have been with me since the beginning, welcome back for the 40th time and thank you for listening in so far. And for episode number 40, guys, I brought you a special treat, and I've got a super special topic for you guys today, one that I know you're both going to cringe at and want to listen in on. Guys, this week, we're talking about sex. And what's so special about this episode, I brought on special guest Mike Iamelli for a second time to talk to us about this. He's got so much insight, so much input, so much wisdom um, on this topic, and I couldn't think of a better person to have this conversation with to introduce the topic to you guys and get you all talking about sex. I want all of my audience and everyone that I work with to be comfortable talking about sex, and you're going to find out why this is so important in this episode. So sit down, get comfortable, lean in, tune in, listen up, and take notes. Take notes, guys. There's a lot of powerful stuff that Mike's going to share in this episode. So enjoy. All right, guys, I'm here with Mike Iamelli. Um, For those of you who listened in, I want to say it was a, a few months ago, I had him on the podcast episode before, and we talked all about sensitivities and mapping sensitivities And I decided to bring Mike back on the podcast this week because he's got some really fascinating stuff to say about sexuality, having great sex, um, sex shaming and what that's about and how we can release our shame surrounding our sexuality and our sexual desires. Um, I personally find this topic to be really fascinating. Um, It hits close to home for me, being a gay male that grew up in a Christian home. Um, I had a lot of sexual shame to work through in my young adulthood um, and figure out on my own. And I wish that I had had someone like Mike to help me through that period of time. But hey, we're, we're here now and I've got him here on the show. You guys are in for a treat. He's always great to talk to, has tons of information. Um, so Mike, why don't you introduce yourself here really quick to those who don't yeah. know you? Thank you so much for having me, Seth. So, um, yep. So basically what I do for work every day is I map people's lived experiences and figure out what they subconsciously do 
every time they're successful, kind of who they are, how they sense and experience life. Now, of course, we can use that to build a business and you know make things feel like you and figure out where you're naturally magnetic. But we can also, like we're going to talk about today, use it for sexuality, to accept yourself deeper, feel more confident, understand where you naturally thrive. You know, so often we, when we don't really know ourselves or what feels good to us, we're letting, you know, either society dictate what we think we're supposed to like or desire or what we're not supposed to like or desire. And that's even worse, right? And we create so much shame around that. And then it becomes really difficult to trust ourselves and to have good sex. And I want to start this conversation, first of all, by saying that, you know, when it comes to sex and sexuality, out there, if you scan any magazine, right, GQ, Cosmo, whatever, you're going to find a whole list of like ways to have great sex, techniques, performances, how to last longer. You know, we hear about the size of your penis. We hear about like all these things out there, right? And I can tell you with certainty, I can even prove it to you right now. I am sure there was a time in your life where someone was doing all the right things, everything was going well, but you were incredibly stressed or you didn't feel safe and you didn't have great sex. And I say that right now because before we even start the conversation, I want to really help us all understand that sex isn't something that's done to you or given to you. It's something that you experience. And if we are in the wrong state of mind, if we feel unsafe, if we feel stressed, we're not having great sex. So I want us to begin this conversation by just flipping that on its head and taking the power back, right? You have the power. You experience great sex. And one more thing I'll say, because I can't shut up, I'm getting excited about this, is that I had a client recently, um, it was a, a cis female, who's heterosexual, and she uh, was in an abusive relationship, but she had great sex in this relationship. And so she since left it, and she said to me, Mike, I'm terrified because I don't think I'll ever have great sex again. This guy just knew what he was doing, we had great sex, and I'm really, really afraid of that. I said, okay, hold up and listen. If even this guy who supposedly is doing all the right things, if he, if you were stressed out that day, would you have great sex? And she said, no, of course not. I said, right. It wasn't that he was giving you something. It was he was turning on your sensitivities, right? He was flipping on those right switches, but you were the ones with those sensitivities. And if we can map exactly what sensitivities were flipped on, what was going on there, then any person willing and able can give you great sex because you know exactly what you need to feel and how to experience it. And I think that's really how I'm framing the conversation today. Awesome. Yeah, I saw you did a post where you were talking about um, feeling sexy and your battle that you had with um, being able to feel sexy in your own skin, in your own body. And you said something really interesting in this post that sexiness isn't about um, certain poses. It isn't about having a certain type of body. It isn't about... Um, you know, performing certain sexual acts. It's about um, knowing what turns you on and what turns you on is your sensitivities. So sexiness is actually about being open and vulnerable to your sensitivities. You want to talk a little bit about that? I think that's really cool. Absolutely. Well, I think let's just break down this idea of sensitivities because let's think about, you know, where we are erogenous, erogenous zones. Like, where I'm sensitive, I literally sense more. I feel more. I experience deeper there. Those are places, you know, we can look at the parts of the body that have the most nerve endings. No surprise, those are often seen as the places where we experience the deepest sensation or the most erogenous zones in our bodies, right? That makes sense, whether we're talking about the penis, the anus, the clitoris, like these are areas that have a lot of nerve endings. And so here in our conversation, we know sensitivity feels good. Like when we feel, when we're safe, 
and we feel an intense sensation, it feels good for the body. And so if we're going to be talking about ourselves and learning to love our bodies, we have to start to see our bodies through what makes us feel good, not what the media tells us or social media says, or, oh my God, my body doesn't look like that man's on Instagram. Like, that's how so many of us are trained to see our bodies, is through the ways that society has told us to look at them rather than through our sensitivities and what makes us feel good and sexy and turned on. And one of my favorite things to recommend to people, especially GBTQ men, but really anybody, is if you're scrolling Instagram one day and you see a sexy photo, instead of thinking this person's absolutely gorgeous, take a pause. Just take one moment and think, what is it about this photo that's sexy? Does it feel powerful? Does it feel intimate? Does this person look safe or confident? Is it this pose? Like, really play with that. And then if you can, and I know this is a jump for some of us, but if you can, see if you can replicate the feelings of that photo. I don't care if you look the exact way the person looks, but see if you can replicate the feelings of that photo and take it of yourself. It can just be a selfie if you want, or you can set up the timer and look at what you look like when you're experiencing those very sensitivities. Because what we're really doing here is we're changing our body image, is understanding what turns us on, and we're really allowing those sensitivities to guide us. And then if we wanna change our body image, bring that into our own body and start to experience it and see what we look like or feel like feeling those things. Awesome, that's really cool. So you mentioned briefly there for a second and earlier you talked about that we experience great sex we experience sexiness about ourselves when we feel safe and you mentioned also earlier this this idea of having self-trust do you want to speak about that a little bit so when i think for a lot of people the word safety can mean a lot of different things so Mm -hmm. what do you mean when you're talking about feeling safe during sex Yeah, well, absolutely. You're right. The word safety is subjective. And that's the whole point here is that when we're mapping our sensitivities, we're understanding what we need to feel safe. Because the bottom line is, what's the difference between erogenous and kind of ticklish and unsafe, right? Like the very parts of my body when I'm prepared and feeling safe to receive or experience, you know, touch um, can feel very erogenous. But if I'm not in that place or it's a random stranger, that very part of the body is going to feel very unsafe to be touched in, right? And it doesn't even need to be genitals. It could be my stomach, right? I do not want my stomach touched by a random stranger, but that could be very erotic by my husband. And so understanding this is what we're really doing today is we're beginning to unpack what we need to feel safe by mapping those very sensitivities. And we're also beginning to understand that You know, especially the queer people amongst us, but really everyone, but I want to speak for a moment more specifically to queer people, is that we have been told over and over again in our lives that we are wrong, that our desires are wrong, right? So from pretty much the get-go, we are taught not to trust ourselves. That is just, you know, a blanket experience of queerness. And what I love about queerness and why I think queerness is so liberating for all of us, whether queer people or non-queer people alike, is that queerness is this fundamental belief that who you are is right. Across, you know, sexual orientation, across gender, across sexual desire, who you are is right. And so we are fighting to liberate ourselves from that. And that doesn't create liberation for just queer people. That creates a liberation for everybody. Because, you know, plenty of, you know, cis heterosexual people are feeling stuck or confined in these boxes. Or feeling that sexuality is, you know, I I said that I, you know, only like these behaviors and so I'm only going to act these behaviors. And what if your desire goes against that? What if it changes? What if it becomes fluid? Now, all of a sudden, you aren't liberated. You're really stuck in a box. 
And when we start from this place of my desires are right and my desires come from my sensations of the world, how I experience the world, whether that's physical sensations or whether that's my emotions, but how I experience and feel what I feel is right. And that could be, you know, in the middle of sex. So I want to say this as well, because I think that we've had some, let's be honest, especially here in the U.S., poor sexual education and not a lot of empowering or consent-based sexual education. And I know so many people who will tell me, well, it didn't feel good, but we were in the middle of it, so I just let it happen. Or, you know, I just felt like I had to keep continuing, right? And we hear these all the time. We hear these messages. We see them in TV shows. We hear them as, you know, defenses in rape cases. So we hear these things coming up again and again and again. And I want to give you an analogy that I really love because I think it's so helpful for me. So for any of us, especially if we are the penetrated party, and in this case, I mean whether it's the mouth, anus, or vagina, um, if we are the penetrated party at all, first of all, you control what goes into your body. And I want you to think about going to a restaurant. And if I go to a restaurant and I order food and I take one bite of that food and it doesn't taste the way I want it to, I am not obligated to finish that meal. If it is a little cold, I can ask for it to be heated up. If I'm full, I can stop eating at any given moment. Just because I took one bite of that food does not obligate me to finish the meal. And I think that metaphor can be really empowering for us. And by the way, even if we're not, if we're the penetrating party or if we're engaging in some other activity, it also holds true. But I especially want to speak to those of us who are having something inserted inside of us because it's our body. And we get to control what food enters our body. We get to control what other things enter our body. And so I want you to really feel that, you know, just because you invited something over, someone over, you're not obligated to do anything. Just because you started kissing, you're not obligated to do anything. Just because something's been inserted, you're not obligated to continue. And I really want us all to feel empowered about how we interact with our sexuality and what goes into our body and happens during sex. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost kind of like being able to, to set our boundaries during sex and, yeah. I think this is, I think this, this kind of rolls over from people being able to set boundaries in life in general. If you're not able to do it there, it's going to be even harder where you're in the middle of a very passionate moment of sex, um, being able to say, Hey, this, this isn't good for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm ready to stop now, but can we not finish? Absolutely. And it, it's, we have so much social conditioning that make it even harder during sex. And so, you know, that's where I love this idea of sensitivities. And I'll give you an example from mine. So my sensitivities, just to tell everyone, are aligned, zany, free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. And so let's say I am in the middle of sex and let's say I'm being penetrated in this moment, just to give us this example. And I decide this doesn't feel good or I don't want this anymore. What I love about having those sensitivities is I can stop myself and saying, I feel overly vulnerable right now and I don't feel comfortable anymore. I don't feel free. I want to take a moment and pause and recenter myself. And so when I feel really stuck, because many of us feel stuck in those moments, it gives us language of specifically what feels uncomfortable in our sensitivities. Do I feel overly vulnerable right here? Do I feel trapped and I'm not free in this moment? Do I feel misaligned and this doesn't feel good and I want to try a different position? What is happening here? And I think that it's so hard and there's so much conditioning to speak up. And that's one thing I love about these sensitivities is if we know what we're most sensitive to, we can start to understand what feels bad and actually have the words. Now, obviously, as I know my sensitivities more, I can be more eloquent and be able to say more you know, articulate things. But in just that moment, if I can't, I can say vulnerable. This feels too vulnerable. And already that feels empowering because I have a word to describe this situation that I do not want it to continue. Yeah. 
Really, yes. I think that's that's a very powerful thing to know, to know this ahead of time um, and to be able to express that. I think a lot of people, like you said, they're afraid to speak up during the middle of sex. And I, I think it, it comes from social conditioning. Um, and also comes from, I think a lot of people, especially in the US struggle with this people pleasing nature. And yeah. people are so afraid of what the other person is going to think of them. And so they're like, if I speak up, what is this person going to think about me? And what are they going? How are they going to react? And so they find it better to just be like, you know what, I'll just suck it up, shut up and take it until this is mm -hmm. over and hope it's over soon. Um, so yeah, I think that's really powerful to know ahead of time to have some vocabulary in your arsenal to be like, this is, as you said, it feels too vulnerable for me. Um, for me, it would be maybe something along the lines of, um, I, I no longer feel like I have any control in this situation. I need a moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, really knowing the things that make you uncomfortable in those situations so you can put words to express and also let the other person know, hey, it's not that you're doing something wrong. I'm just not feeling right about something here. Yeah. I need a minute to figure out what it is. Absolutely. And I think now we're getting into more sophisticated sex because we've already talked about sex isn't something that's done to us. It's something that we experience. So if we can say this doesn't feel good, we can also then say what does feel good. And this is where things get exciting. And here's kind of the interesting thing about sensitivities. Um, and I'll put myself on the spot to start here. So if I say this feels too vulnerable for me as a bad thing, we also know that those bad things in the right context can feel really good. Maybe I want to feel vulnerable, right? Maybe there are moments, Seth, where you want to let go of control and feel out of control and that feels good to you. But what parameters do we need to get you there, right? And so that's why we're always trusting our desires and turn-ons because they're going to explain to us what we're most sensitive to, why this feels really good and then also why this doesn't feel so good and why, you know, and it's going to be on that same continuum. We are always playing on that because that's what we sense deepest. So now I can say this feels too vulnerable and out of control, but I would like to, you know, explore vulnerability in this different way. Or maybe I need more talking or more eye contact or more what's going to help me feel vulnerable in the safe way. And the cool thing is, and this is my little trick I'll teach all of you, we'll go back to my words, aligned, zany, free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. If I am like, oh my God, this feels too vulnerable. This isn't working for me. How could I make vulnerable feel good? Just go to the other words. Maybe I'm in a misaligned position. I want to realign. I want to feel freer. I want to feel more successful. Maybe I need more praise or words, kind words as I'm in this to encourage me. And all of a sudden it's going to change. And that vulnerable is can now feel really empowering. And so what's cool is these words become self-defining. What vulnerable means to me, for me to feel vulnerable, I need to feel aligned, zany, successful, free, unmistakable. For me to feel successful, I need to feel aligned, zany, vulnerable, and so on. And so it starts to help us understand because we can never be one part of ourselves. We are always all of ourselves. So when we're looking at these sensitivities, we're really looking at how do we articulate what we're most sensitive to. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's interesting. We're able to sit here and have this conversation about sex, about sexuality. And um, for me, it feels completely comfortable to talk about this. But I think for a lot of people, it's you know, even though there are ways to have these adult sort of conversations about sex, they avoid them. And I think this has a lot to do with uh, the fact that our culture is very shaming about sexuality in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. And so would you like to speak about that, about sexual shame? I know you being a gay male, um, you know, and your coming out story, you experience sexual shame. I've experienced it. 
Um, so tell, tell me a little bit about how you have experienced sexual shame and how that shows up in life, how it has affected. Has- sure. I mean, I think we need five more podcast episodes to talk about this very topic, but you know, I'll try. So, you know, I think regardless, whether you are in the queer community or not, all of us, we live in a very sexually repressed world, especially here in the U S definitely a sexually repressed country. Um, there's just so much social conditioning around, you know, don't be a slut, don't be a, like all these things we get from a very early age that um, tell us that our desires are wrong. And I remember early on, so I was 12 years old when I started masturbating, and I remember friends in middle school saying people who masturbate are disgusting and something's wrong with them. And I felt a lot of shame and I felt like I couldn't talk about this or there was no space for me to talk about this. And I think that, you know, hopefully as we get older, it gets a little bit better. But in many cases, I don't think it really does. You know, I know so many friends who aren't feeling safe to talk to their friends or their communities about sexuality, about what they're experiencing. And if they do feel safe to talk about it, it's usually this um, hyperbole or this kind of joking, funny thing, but never actually something that's vulnerable and feels real. So we don't actually have a real conversation about sex, right? Um, and part of it is, you know, especially I'm going to talk to the queer community, especially GBTQ men here, um, around there's so much pride associated with sexuality, right? Like whether it's how long you can last, how big your penis is, you know, how many partners you've had, how good you can be at sex, quote unquote, as if that's a thing. And so I think that this becomes this kind of pissing contest and people don't want to be vulnerable or they feel afraid to talk about these things in a real way. And I mean, I'll scroll gay Instagram and believe me, there are so many meme accounts that have the most outrageous, ridiculous memes and jokes, and that's great and funny, but none of it feels real. None of it feels like an actual you know, experience that people are having, and I don't think we're having enough of these conversations because on some level, we feel ashamed. We feel ashamed of what we're feeling. We're told from an early age that our feelings, our experiences are wrong. We feel like, you know, we might be giving up worth or power to, you know, let's say that I'm having issues, you know, ejaculating too quickly or not being able to ejaculate at all or whatever. Like, all sorts of, oh my God, something's wrong with me. I'm ashamed. I can't talk about this. Or the biggest one, and the biggest one I want to talk about today is desires and fetishes, because that is just a Pandora's box of shame right there. And, you know, first of all, I've done a lot of work with a lot of people on desires and fetishes and their sensitivities. Very rarely is a fetish an exact literal interpretation of sensitivities, right? The reasons that we have a fetish may have nothing to do with actually wanting to physicalize or act out this very fetish. And so we can unpack that. And I want to give you an example because I think this is helpful. Um, I had a client recently who uh, he had a lot of anxiety. He was spending an inordinate amount of money on OnlyFans and specifically custom videos asking these white muscly men, he's black by the way, these white muscly men to get in very vulnerable positions. And so he was like going to debt over this. And so he hired me to figure out what is going on here and why does he feel, because he's so ashamed, he cannot talk to anybody else about this, not even his closest friends, because this is so shameful for him. And when we mapped his sensitivities, three of the sensitivities we discovered were, I think it was powerful, um, calm, and intimate. And I said, okay, 
Do you think that you are trying to create calm because you have so much anxiety by watching intimacy and specifically feeling powerful over these people? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, and, you know, as a black gay man in this world, do you feel not always powerful? I said, I never feel powerful. I said, okay. And do you feel extra powerful that these white muscle men with a click of a button, you can make them be the most vulnerable positions? He said, absolutely. I said, that's it. Like, we understand exactly what this fetish is all about, right? There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing broken about you. You are working, you are especially sensitive to power dynamics because powerful is a sensitivity. And so you're especially sensitive to how not powerful you feel. And you want to create a sense of inner calm by, you know, playing with intimacy and power dynamics. That makes total sense from what I'm seeing here. Nothing is wrong with you, but now we have the opportunity to make you feel those things in a way that isn't putting you in debt. So let's find new ways to explore this. The fetish itself isn't wrong. And that's what I want to say to everybody listening. The fetish itself, it's not wrong. Like We can unpack and understand why. And that's the most powerful word for me in the English language is why. Because we try to shame ourselves a lot but shame has never been an effective tool for behavior change. I've tried it, believe me. I've tried to shame myself into changing my behavior. Never, ever, ever works because I'm not getting to the root of why I'm exhibiting that behavior. But if I can understand, if I can get to the root of why, then I can choose maybe a new container that feels more empowering for me, but actually deal with the issue at hand. Right, exactly, yes. Yes, I fully agree with you. Um, uh, it's kind of like also a bit of a different topic here. But when I'm talking to to clients of mine about their their goals and what they want to achieve in life, a lot of times, um, especially like say it's uh, say I've got a 70 year old client and he sees all these like muscle guys on the beach or whatever, and he's like, I want a body like that, and mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so let's talk about this here. And when we get to the root of the the goal there, the desire, there's actually something that the person wants to feel, and that's what we're trying to create. Okay, because maybe we're at the point now where we can't lift weights heavy enough to to have a body that looks exactly like that. Mm -hmm. But what you're wanting actually here is a feeling. So how can we create that feeling for you? And I think what you're saying here is very much the same thing just with sex. That's what you just said is so important. I want all of us to understand because just like I don't care if sex takes, you know, three hours or 15 minutes, if it can make me feel what I want to feel, that's good sex. The only definition of good sex is that it feels good for all people involved. I don't care what anyone looks like, what their body is, what the size of anything is, the shape of anything, how long it lasts. I don't care. I care does it feel good for everybody involved. And that's a feeling. You know, so often in life, we forget that the only reason we do anything in life is to feel something. We want to feel something in particular. But we get so caught up in these narratives of this is the only way to feel that. I need to have this body. I need to, you know, have last for... 75 minutes, I need to, whatever it is that we think that is that narrative. And that all comes from conditioning. And when we start with our sensitivities, and that's why I said about our body image, don't worry about what Instagram you're seeing or magazines, start with your own sensitivities. When we start with what we want to feel, what we're most sensitive to, that's where empowerment comes from. Yeah. So as far as you've talked about in the US that we have this issue in the US of, of being a very sexually repressed society. Um, what would you say in, in your opinion or in your experience are some of the biggest damages you see in people's lives because of living a life of sexual repression? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it can go far and wide, right? I mean, I have certainly seen, you know, gay men married to women in unhappy relationships. That's definitely something that can be really damaging for people. I've seen people who have attempted suicide um, because of some of the shame that they've experienced um, in maybe more subtle or innocuous ways. Um, I've seen people... Uh, really afraid of rejection or opening up to partners or even, you know, dating partners or, um, you know, it's a kind of interesting phenomenon, but I've had a number of clients in this case where they would be on dating apps, having sexy conversation, go to meet up and then never actually meet up. And so this was something I've seen quite a bit of. And so this kind of challenge with intimacy and with really allowing somebody into your world. And I think, you know, I have a number of friends. I can't tell you how many friends in heterosexual relationships where the heterosexual cis woman will always say, my husband does not watch porn. And I know with certainty, having talked to him, that he watches porn. And I hope nobody is listening to this conversation. But, you know, it's very interesting to me the way that we're not able to have open, honest, frank conversations about sex and sexuality. And so... Even in what I would consider healthy relationships, there's still a level of lying or shame or not being able to talk about desires and fetishes. And, you know, that does erode trust in the relationship to some extent. Maybe not a huge extent, but even in the most minor cases, that is still harming us. Because what we're telling ourselves over and over again is who I am at my absolute most vulnerable is wrong. I can't be that person. And if I am totally that person, my relationship will end or people won't love me or I'll be rejected or whatever our story is around that. And so this shame that we're all feeling is causing massive problems in our lives, even if it's not those, you know, we're not a gay man married to a woman, let's say, but it's something a little bit more minor. It still is eroding our self-trust just a little bit and telling us what we desire is wrong. Yeah. So I find it the, this idea about pornography is also very interesting because there are it's kind of like a, a very polarizing topic. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, I deal with a lot of people that have issues with maybe even being like addicted to pornography, like they yeah. can't stop watching it. But at the same time, a lot of times what I find when you get to the root of why it is that they, they feel like they can't stop watching it, it has a lot to do with the fact that their desires are repressed. They're not able yes. to talk about it. And so they they turn to this, it's like pornography becomes this other world to them. Um, and then the other, the other side of it is that people that even just, you know, are curious about pornography and just want to like, maybe they go buy a video at a store and they feel so ashamed with admitting that they want to watch a porn video or that they yeah. own a porn video or that they've watched pornography at all. And so I find this to be, to be really fascinating why do you think it is that pornography in and of itself is such um, a, a difficult topic for people to talk about, especially people in relationships? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, everybody has their own boundaries. And by the way, I'm not here to be uh, evangelist for or against pornography, right? Like, I think that pornography, like anything else, is just a tool. And we can use it a whole bunch of different ways. We can use it in really empowering ways. You can use it in really disempowering ways. And we get to talk about that really important question, which is why. Why is always our important question here. Because that's going to tell us, you know, 
is this really serving me and my sensitivities or not? And I have no stake in that game. I'm here to help everybody feel empowered. But I think when it comes to relationships, because people have different boundaries and because there is endless conditioning around it, some people see pornography as cheating. They see it as that you should only ever be attracted to me and, you know, have orgasm thinking about me. And therefore, if you're thinking about orgasm with um, somebody else or you're watching somebody else, therefore it is cheating. And I'm not here to pass a judgment on that, but I think what's really interesting and challenging about that is that's eliminating any desire or fetish you could possibly have even in kind of abstract. So it might be just like the abstract desire of being tied up or chained and have nothing to do with the actors or the people being in it. And that doesn't, you know, allow you to really explore all of yourself. And I know for me personally, and I'll be totally vulnerable here, when Garrett and I first got together, we had never been with men into our conscious knowledge, never had a strong interest. And so we really use pornography as a way to explore latent desires without having to physicalize because we didn't feel safe to do so. And so we could watch pornography together. Maybe we would masturbate together while watching pornography. And this could start to get us to begin to physicalize and have a relationship with one another and explore things. And I think it can be incredibly empowering. And by the way, I know a lot of people have concerns about high-speed pornography. Pornography is, there are endless roads to it. You know, erotic literature is a wonderful form of pornography. And one of my favorite things, actually, to recommend to clients, depending on their sensitivities, but for certain clients, um, like I had one whose sensitivity was fantastical, if you can believe it, and this person was shaming themselves for pornography. I said, fantasy's right in there. Like, you are a fantasy person. You've got to understand this, is to actually write your own erotic literature. Mm -hmm. write out your fantasies and you can p publish anonymously if you want or never publish but it's really exciting and there is something exciting about the publishing aspect i know for clients because then you hear from other people who say and it can be anonymous right but you hear from other people who say oh my god that really turned me on or i really like this part of it and it starts to normalize your experience and so there are endless endless forms of pornography and pornography has really existed since the beginning of time right i mean i a few years ago was in pompeii and there's pornography all over the walls these beautiful frescoes with pornography right so this is not something that's new or modern now yes high-speed internet has changed the game and access to pornography but the desire to explore fetishes and turn-ons and voyeurism watching people have sex that's nothing new that is a human desire right and i think the fear surrounding the fact that high-speed internet allows pornography to be watched so quickly is that people are afraid of becoming addicted to pornography because we live in a society that we, we become so addicted to things so frequently because we're repressing so much of ourselves. Exactly. We're looking for these things outside of us to make us feel what it is that we want to create for ourselves. And so I find it interesting that people are afraid of pornography leading to addiction because they're not exploring their sexual desires. But I'm like, this is the reason why pornography <laughs> can become addictive is because you're not exploring your sexual desires. And we've seen this, that, you know, some of the most repressed states, we've seen Utah with Islamomanism has the highest rates of pornography usage. Of course, there's a lot of repression there. I mean, we've seen this, you know, historically throughout the world, a lot of places. And specifically, if you want to see the search terms people are looking up, it's often related to the repression in that particular area. So there's a lot of this stuff going on here. And I think what we need to understand about addiction in the first place is that, yes, there is chemical addiction, but um, the strongest pull for addiction is always going to be emotional. And so, look, I I have sugar all over my house, right? I have coffee. I have alcohol here. I could theoretically have a drink and then just keep going. But 
the reason I don't do that is I feel satisfied. I could watch porn for 10 minutes and be good, or I could watch for five hours. Like just having the substance, quote unquote, or the trigger there doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to become addicted. And the reason, again, if I'm eating sugar all day, I can stop and say, why? What is going on here? How is it feeding my sensitivities? And can I feed those sensitivities in a different way? That's really all that's happening here. If we ever repress our sensitivities, we are going to find other ways to fulfill them. That is a human need, right? That is a compulsion. And usually when we put ourselves in a little box, we're going to find very um, distorted ways to fulfill those things because we haven't given ourselves the most empowering ways possible to fulfill it. Yeah. So this brings me to another aspect of this topic that I want to talk about and maybe a little bit uncomfortable for some people to listen to, but I feel like it's important to talk about. You brought it up earlier when we're talking about our fetishes and sexual desires. I know for me, I have a lot of um, a lot of female friends that mm -hmm. they feel very comfortable talking to me about their sexuality. And mm -hmm. they'll a lot of them are in relationships, partnerships, marriages with other people. And they will tell me, I've never told my spouse, I've never told my boyfriend, I've never told my sexual partner this, but I've always wanted, I fantasize about this. And it's like, they're so scared of being labeled as somehow deviant or slutty or mm -hmm. wrong or evil for speaking their desire, like what it is that they're, they're fantasizing about in sex. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sexual desires and, and fetishes, fantasies that people have. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I think it saddens me that the very people that you're having sex with and connecting with and could give you this desire are the people we're not speaking to about it. And I, I you know, really sympathize because I have felt it myself many times in my life that it's so vulnerable and we have so much conditioning telling us, you know, you don't want to be deviant or slutty or deranged or this person's not going to be, you know, interested in you or they're going to think you're sick and something's wrong with you. And that's all of our internalized shame that we're projecting out to this person. And I have no idea how they're going to react, but what I have made a rule in my relationship because vulnerable is one of my sensitivities is that anything that is said during sex, and I define sex as when we're starting to be kind of intimate leading towards any type of sexual interaction, including all the way till after orgasm, anything said during then is fair game. It's not judged. Now, I don't know that people are really into it. Nobody has to act on something that they're not, but... It's just kind of like, cool, yeah, roll with it. And there are times where my husband will say things to me like, is that actually true? And I said, I have no idea. I was just orgasming. Like, I don't know. It was just coming out. And sometimes it's the shame of saying it that's actually more powerful than if it's true or not. Like, it doesn't really matter. It's just the shame of being able to be that vulnerable. And again, vulnerable is my sensitivity. So that vulnerability turns me on to be able to be that radically vulnerable, even if it's something that's untrue for me. And I think that it's, you know, when we feel like your female friends, when we feel that we can't talk to our partners about our desires, what we're saying is that those desires are wrong, right? Something about us is wrong and we feel shame around those things and we're never really going to explore them or get them fulfilled, which, you know, we may find other ways. And I, I'm not condoning this, but whether it's cheating or, you know, pornography or other ways, because we want to explore these things. We want to explore life, right? So we're going to want to explore these or we're going to just kind of slowly numb ourselves inside, which is even more painful. And so I think here, um, 
you know, I want to encourage us all to start having conversations where we feel safe about our sexual desires and cultivating those spaces. And I'm so glad your friends have you as a space. And I think, I mean, this is a big overhaul I'm asking for here, but overhauling our entire society to make it safer where people can talk to partners about this and have open conversations about sex. Because at the end of the day, good sex is about needs being met. That's all that really is, right? But those sensitivities being met. And so if we are not talking about our deepest needs, we can't have great sex. And, you know, it's okay for it to be a conversation and, you know, make sure both people feel comfortable in their boundaries because both needs need to be met. So we can say, you know, let's pretend, I'll say, you know, free is one of my sensitivities. So let's say like, you know, Garrett, I really want to explore bondage and I want to explore being tied up and this feeling of free and restrained and blah, blah, blah. And, he sa- and let's say he says, you know what, that doesn't feel good to me. And that feels really uncomfortable, but let's talk about other ways that we can make you feel this restraint that feels good for you. And so what's great about that and going back to that level of feelings or sensitivities is I'm getting clear on why I want to feel that, what feels good to me. And then if my partner isn't comfortable with the very thing I'm asking for, that's okay. We can still explore helping me to feel that in a way that is comfortable to that person. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking, you, you mentioned earlier about sexual desires, that one of the biggest, the biggest issues that you hear with people and how they approach their sexual desires is with the shame comes this idea that there's something wrong with them and their sexual desires. And you, mm-hmm. you said that there's whatever your sexual desires are, there's nothing wrong with you or your desires. Um, and I know for a lot of people, and I know for me too, specifically, when I have these sort of conversations with people, especially in the Christian community, they always bring up the idea of pedophiles and rapists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they're like, well, if, if there's no such thing as a, a bad sexual desire or, or bad people with bad sexual desires, then why do we have pedophiles and rapists? And, you know, I, I have... We, we talked about this a little bit before we got on the recording mm-hmm. here. Um, I have some opinions about this as well. And I, I feel like you have a great view on this. And I, I want you to to kind of speak on that a little bit, what, what you have to say there. Absolutely. So there's a lot I have to say about it. I'm going to split these two groups up and talk about, you know, rape first, because I think that it's important that we talk about these as separate issues. Um, You know, rape is never about sex. It's about power. And we know that, you know, from statistics, we know that from a lot of research. So number one, the actual physical act of someone being assaulted, which unfortunately is all too common in our world today, um, has much less to do with sex and much more to do with power and power dynamics. And, um, you know, when it comes to rape, Fantasy, if we're going to talk about that as separate, when we're talking about you know, not the physical act, rape fantasies are actually incredibly common and incredibly common in my work by survivors of sexual assault as well. I work with a number of female survivors of sexual assault who feel tons of shame around rape fantasies. And the thing is that I want to make really clear here is what we said a little bit earlier, but fantasy is not always and actually rarely literal, right? So I may fantasize about a certain thing because I'm like my client who was, you know, paying these men to be in vulnerable positions. I'm exploring something, maybe exploring power dynamics, maybe exploring and thinking about and fantasizing and working through it. And so much of fantasy is working through or processing things in our lives. Now, very rarely is a fantasy, like a rape fantasy, something that people want to physicalize. Now, I can't speak for everybody, and certainly those are the cases where if somebody 
has a fantasy where they want to physicalize without someone else's consent, that's something that we maybe want to get mental health support around and start to look at and explore. But that's a very rare case and minority when it comes to this. It, I mean, the majority of rape fantasies are explorations of power and really exploring. Now, when we come over to pedophilia, um, I have a little bit of knowledge and experience here because one of my very good friends is a forensic psychologist who specializes in sexual dysfunction and disorder, and she actually uh, ran a program for uh, people who were imprisoned for acting out pedophilia. And basically, they could get a year off of their prison sentence if they went through her program. And the you know rate of recidivism, which is the rate of kind of going back to prison for the same crime, um, is really high with sexual assault, especially pedophilia, very, very high. Through this program, it was about 2%. So very low. And part of what was going on there is the people who have pedophilia um, understood that they don't want to act this out. In the very vast majority of cases, they don't want to act this out, but they feel this compulsion or they can't control themselves. And so you know, rather than kind of throwing these people away and not looking at them, what my friend would say and what I would say is that if our real solution here is to keep children safe, and we know that these people feel compulsion that they cannot control for themselves, then we want to give them every tool possible to not act on that experience right there. Because, of course, we know children cannot give consent. And so my number one rule for sex, right, it's got to feel good for all people involved, and it's got to have consent. So rape does not meet that, and pedophilia does not meet that. And, you know, if somebody is having uh, pedophilic fantasies and, you know, feels uncomfortable with this, understandably, or that they would ever act out, again, that's a great place to seek out mental health support and make sure that you have the tools and the support there so that you're not acting out something that is violating somebody's consent. And so, um, you know, I think that there is a cycle, actually, you, there's a whole bunch of research on pedophilia. There's a cycle of when you're in a grooming phase, when you are in an acting out phase, and, you know, many people with pedophilia may be manipulating themselves and not even recognize this. So, so much of the empowerment of these processes and systems is actually to um, help them recognize the cycle and where they are. But my overarching message on both of these things, especially I'm speaking to anybody who says, you know, if you explore all of your fantasies, you're just going to go into rape and pedophilia, is that number one, the, like this, what we're talking about here is such a small, small, small percentage of anybody. And number two, none of these people, nobody wants to cause harm, right? I mean, when it comes to sexual desire, because rape isn't really, actual rape isn't really about sexual desire, right? It's about power. And again, with pedophilia, you know, there's still a lot of research that's going both ways, but with pedophilia, there is a desire with children, but these people do not want to act that out in the vast majority of cases. And all of this can be solved by more open conversations on sexuality, right? So we need to be talking about it because if, let's say I were a person, I am not, just to be clear, but I were a person who had pedophilic thoughts, um, and that we live in a sexually repressed world where those never came to the surface, I'm a lot more likely to act on those thoughts than if I lived in a very open society where we could all talk about desires and fetishes and realize I have concerns about this. Can I go get support for it? And this is something I really want to talk about. We know that mental health support can solve a lot of problems in our world today. There's a lot more that is needed in our world today, and especially around this topic around sexuality. If you know, I am a person who can't even talk to my husband about my sexual desires. I'm definitely not talking to mental health counselors about these desires. I'm definitely not going to be working through and processing these things. And I think it's really important that we understand that we need to open the dialogue so that we actually 
keeping people safe and preventing the very things that we're scared of by starting that dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that it's it's really interesting. The the people that are concerned about pedophilia, concerned um, about, you know, rapists, the, the main concern is that they want to keep people safe. And, you know, it's interesting to me that the solution that we have now is like, well, just lock up someone who rapes someone or lock up someone who commits pedophilia. And I'm like, okay, so this doesn't actually keep anyone safe because we have no preventative measures. We have no tools right. for these people to, because yeah, you can, you could lock, lock up every single person on this planet that struggles with pedophilia. You could lock up every single person on this planet that struggles with ideas about rape and wanting to rape people. But guess what? A new generation is going to be born and there will be people in that generation who also struggle with this. Yeah. So in, until we can figure out the why until we can figure out tools to help these people instead of making them into monsters that we just cast off and throw them in a box somewhere and hope we never have to see them again. If we can't figure out ways to offer these people tools, then we've never found a solution to actually create yeah. the safety that we're wanting to create here. Yeah, you know, I think it's, again, going back to that why, going back to the root cause, the why is we want to keep people safe. And so if we can get back and understand that, what's the best path to do that? And often when we get right to the why, we create better solutions. But the truth is that we as a world, as a society, are uncomfortable with these things. We're uncomfortable with sexuality, we're uncomfortable with pedophilia, we're uncomfortable with sexual assault. And so we would rather shut these conversations down and not deal with them or face them. You know, I know working with a number of clients who are survivors of sexual assault that there are many, many people when they start to talk about anything who just want to shut them down. They just want to be like, oh, well, thank God you're safe and you're fine now. And like, it's, we're not comfortable as a society. We're just not comfortable with these conversations. And it comes right back to the beginning of what we're talking about. There is so much shame. There's so much discomfort that we say we want to keep people safe. We say we want people to be happy and have loving lives. But in actuality, we really want comfort. What we really, we're prizing right now is numbing out and not having these conversations because we have to go through some difficult places. I'm not going to lie to anybody here. To claim your fetishes and desires, you've got to work through shame. Sometimes you have to work through trauma, right? A lot of times fetishes are your way of processing trauma. That's the way that your body and the mind is processing it. And I'm going to give you a, a tip that this is one of my favorite tips. Um, never, ever, ever waste an orgasm, first of all. Never waste an orgasm. Orgasms are so powerful. They are powerful moments of transmutation. Do not waste an orgasm. I am a big believer in if you have a shame, and let's pretend, I'll use myself as an example, let's pretend I don't, or I, let's pretend I feel I have a deviant thought, and nobody would, if people knew about this, oh my God. Okay, take this thought and bring it into the bedroom. And I might ask my husband to bring it up and say, oh my God, could you imagine if this person knew about this thought? Like, how would they, like, what, how would they react? Like, how would people, and start to bring up that shame when I feel like I'm in a very safe space and when I'm with, you know, up until the moment of orgasm and speak those words out loud as I orgasm. I cannot tell you how empowering that is to work through any level of shame. Now, this could be anything. It could be like, I'm ugly and I hate my body. And then my husband would be like, why am I having sex with you? You're ugly, right? And keep doing that till the moment of orgasm. Like, it doesn't really matter what it is. And you do not need a partner to do this. You can do it by yourself. But speak the words out loud if you can. I mean, be home alone or in a safe space where you feel comfortable. But get yourself to that moment of orgasm and speak those words out loud because you are claiming that empowerment over those words. And you're realizing that you're allowing that shame to literally release with the orgasm. And it's such a powerful place to be in when we can get to that space.
Yes, totally agree. That's that's really powerful there. Um, all right. So you spoke a little bit earlier directly to the the GBTQ community. Um, and I'm going to even throw in the L part of this, the LGBTQ community. Mm, yeah. So this is me speaking directly to this community as well and asking you a question because I want I want your opinion on this as well, where where this comes from, what you think the solution is here. Because I know for me, um, being a gay male growing up in the Bible Belt in a, a very super religious family, um, coming out was such a, a shame a shame-based and fearful act for me. Um, it My coming out story was a bit traumatizing for me. It wasn't voluntary. Um, and it felt very, very violent for me. And I'm not saying like physically violent. It's not like someone beat the crap out of me. But I mean, it felt very violent for me. Like something was literally being ripped from me when, when this happened. And I remember feeling before I came out this this deep, deep, deep shame about owning that sexuality there. And I see it in so many gay men, especially in the United States when I lived there, this shame of exploring their desires of either bisexuality or homosexuality because of this this fear about what it means um, about them as a person, and especially for the, the men in the United States, what it means about their masculinity. So what do you have to say about that? Because I know for me, I was, I was deeply ashamed and afraid that when I came out as a gay male, that everyone was going to see me as basically a woman, you know, and I even, even some people in the church, when I came out, were like, so you basically, you want to be a girl? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to be a girl. I'm, I want to be a man who likes men. And this whole, all the bullying that goes on with that, all of the you know, I think also in a lot of hip hop culture, some of the the words that are being used, the the word faggot, the word queer, mm-hmm. um, and also the the fact that um, I think on television, the representation for the gay male community, most of the people that we see, it's we see we see drag queens that are very proud to be out about their sexuality, and we see a lot of um, gay men that are very comfortable with their their feminine side coming out about their sexuality. But to be honest, there aren't a lot of men on television that are open about their sexuality that aren't one of these two things. And I feel like it polarizes the community and it makes a lot of men afraid to talk about their sexual desires in this area. And that's Mm -hmm. not to say that being a drag queen makes you feminine or that being comfortable with your femininity is somehow makes you weak or makes you more of a woman. But I just feel like there's not a lot of representation out there. And a lot of men, especially in the US are very ashamed about owning their homosexual or bisexual desires. Yeah, this is a big one. So there's so much that goes into this topic. You know, growing up being told that you were wrong and being told things that you know being gay makes you a woman now first of all if you are trans as a person we want to also celebrate people and bring them into these conversations so but specifically we're talking about i think cis men who are gay in this case and um you know when you use the f word and i what i say about slurs is that anything that has been used to degradate you or disempower you you 
and only you, the people who have been, you know, degraded with that word, have the right to reclaim that word in whatever feels right, right? Whether it is in the black community, the N-word, whether it is, you know, the K-word in the Jewish community, whatever word it is that you're, you know, feeling. Um, and, and for the gay community, the cis gay community, the F-word is one that I know that many gay men feel shame about feeling turned on by that word. Uh, or in the right context, obviously not by a stranger in the street, but during a sexual situation. And that may or may not be the case. But again, this idea that we can eroticize shame. And if you feel like you want to, I don't know, in the middle of penetrative sex, have your partner call you that word and say, imagine if your dad walked in. That's a fine way to begin to work through any masculinity things you have. So the, the point isn't that you are actually less. It's to work through the parts of you that still feel shame around that particular thing. And recognizing that who you are is beautiful and right. And there are still these latent little pockets of shame within there that... You know, when we feel the right level of safety, and that's why I am I'm running a group uh, right now or in September for GBTQ men, because I want to create more spaces like this where we can have those conversations. And we can say, you know, I never said this out loud, but like I didn't realize I still have shame of what my dad thought, but I won't kiss my partner in front of him. Like those conversations happen in front of me all the time, right? And recognizing that coming out is a continual process. It's layered. It's not just like one time it happens and now you are good. First of all, you have to come out to everybody always and meet new people and you're still coming out. So it's a continual process, but it's also coming out in layers, right? Coming out about your desires, coming out about this fetish, coming out about this shame that you didn't even know you had, but is still in there. We are constantly unpacking and saying, my desires are right. I am right. Being a gay man is right. Being, if I want to dress and drag, that's right. If I don't want to, that's right. If I want, like, it doesn't matter. You know, I think that there is a um, particular idea of what the gay male um, community is. And often it is, you know, this, especially on Instagram, like cis male, very, you know, white and muscly. And there's, a, you know, wearing a jock strap. And there's a whole kind of community or idea of what that is. And there's a huge diversity of what gay men are. There's a huge diversity of this community with very different desires and notions. And I think that's so beautiful. I want to celebrate. Like, we don't want to put anyone into one little box because if we're putting someone in a box, what we're doing is saying that only the desires that fit in this box are right and anything else is wrong. And we don't want that. We want to say every part of you, every sensitivity, every lived experience is right. You know, if my favorite thing to say is that you are the right thing. And if any label or theory is counter to your lived experience, guess what? You've just disproven that. You've expanded its definition and taught us so much more about it because that's not right and you have to fit into it. You're right and these things are there to explain you. And so I think, you know, when we're talking about working through the shame, and it is an endless process, right? We can, therapy is a beautiful resource for this. You know, to having, being around queer people is really important. Making sure that we have some access to a community of queer people, even if you are in a place where you are not out yet, but you can get into an anonymous online forum or something or Grinder, and I you know this sounds silly, but I've heard from a number of clients that using Grinder as a way to connect and actually work through shame just to talk and not hook up is something that a lot of people are using. And I think that's fantastic. So making sure that you're having access and also to queer media and the diversity of queer media, like you said, you know, the mainstream you know, media, we may not be seeing tons of representation. So start seeking out whether it's indie magazines or, you know, 
unfortunately, I'll be honest with you, a lot of the indie uh, gay movies are pretty low budget that I've seen, so they may not be the greatest movies, but we're, we're working on getting funding for more of, that, more of them. But like even finding that, finding a diversity of voices, if you feel like you're not being represented or your experience isn't being represented, see if you can find some voices or if you are bold enough and you're you know out there, create things, create media for us, even if it's just like a reel or a post on Instagram that is so helpful and healing for all of us who don't feel like we fit in. And I'm going to say it one more time, feel free to eroticize shame. It is one of the most empowering ways that we can work through shame. Don't run away from what you're ashamed of, run towards it. And imagine somebody walking in and you catching you watching gay porn. Like that might And once you do that, journal for the next 30 minutes about what came up and what happened because it's going to help you work through when you're safe and ready to do so. Awesome. And what would you say to someone who is, I mean, I guess this could be a gay male who's thinking about um, whether or not to come out. It could also be um, a, a woman in a relationship with her husband and that hasn't spoken about a sexual desire that she has. What would you say to someone who's, on the fence about debating or debating whether or not they want to ever bring this up or if they should just keep it in and hope that they can keep it in for the rest of their life and hide it from everybody. Yeah. So I have maybe an unpopular opinion, a different opinion, which is don't do it if it will harm your safety. So safety first is always the name of the game. Now, if we are in a situation, whether it's a family dynamic or in a country where it's not safe to come out, specifically we're talking about, you know, gay men here, um, you know, and you can make a long-term plan to get out of that situation, you want to make sure you prioritize your safety. We don't want to put you in a situation where you are going to be harmed in any way. And similarly, if you are a woman talking about your desires and you're worried about domestic violence, that's definitely a case where you want to make sure that your safety comes first and maybe you want to think about getting out of that relationship. But once we know that we are physically safe, I mean, emotionally safe is the next step and that certainly we can't always predict or know with certainty and there is going to be a lot of risk that comes with it. And I think it's, you know, start small and build up your arsenal. And so it might be talking to friends or talking to other people where you feel even safer before you talk to your partner about this or before you come out to your family. Um, You might start to say to a friend, hey, I have this fetish and I feel ashamed about it or talk to a therapist about it or journal about it. Like start processing it because we humans do this funny thing where we tell people how to react when we're ashamed. So I might say, oh, not to be conceited, but Nobody thought what I was about to say was conceited, but now that I told them it was, now all of a sudden they think, hey, is that conceited? So we do this all the time, right? When we're ashamed of something, we start to tell people how to react to it. And so the more that we can process it, whether it's through therapy, journaling, talking to a friend, the less shame we're going to have around, so we just present it. Like, I don't know how you'll react, but I have this fetish and I, I want to tell you about it because I want to have an open dialogue here. We get to have a more, you know... Um, neutral conversation about it. And then when you are ready to have these conversations, whether it's coming out or talking about the fetish, um, start small. And you can say, you know, uh, I've been really thinking about something that I want to try. And maybe it's not the whole big giant fetish, but it's like one small part of it. And say, would you be open or interested in that? And like, I just really want to feel this. And go back to that feeling when we're talking about the fetish. Because the partner might say, I'm not comfortable with that fetish. Like maybe... Let's say that you say, I have a, you know, a rape fantasy fetish where I feel really safe here and I want you to kind of come in and come from behind or whatever. And the person says, I'm not comfortable with that. However, I 
no, you're working through power. Let's talk about a different way to do it. So again, going back to that why, going back to that sensitivity, starting small and doing as much processing as possible. And I think the same really holds true for coming out as well. You know, come out to the people you feel safe with first. Start to process your own shame on your own and build up support networks. So, you know, it's possible people will react negatively, but even if they do, you have networks and support in place to handle it for you. Yes, awesome. So basically from what, I, what I've gathered from what you said here, our steps here in, in creating a better sex life are number one, to create an environment um, within ourselves and within whatever relationship we might be in in which we feel safe. Then the second part of that is to start small with exploring um, the, the things that we fantasize about, the things that we're sensitive to, and to do it with an openness, not, not judgment, not looking at it as if it's something to be shameful about or wrong. And um, the, the, the last part, I think, is bringing our partner in to this and being able to include them and, and make them feel a part of this process as well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And don't forget that if you masturbate, and many of us do, um, bring it into masturbation first, right? Bring it into your relationship with yourself. Allow it because some of us won't even let ourselves fully go there with the fantasy. And if any shame comes up, journal about it after. Start to process. If you have a therapist, talk to your therapist about that or talk to friends about it. If you're going to be eroticizing shame, bring it into the masturbation first and then journal about it and process it. So whether it's a fantasy or whether it's shame, which are two sides of the same coin, bring all of that in there. And then when you feel ready, you can talk to a partner if you have one. Great. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on and having this conversation with me. I think this was a lot of really great stuff for people to hear. We, we talked about, I think, a wide variety of things invol involving sexuality, sexual shame, desires, um, a whole lot to process here. Anything that you want to say in closing to people before we go? about sexuality I, or anything we've talked about today. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I think that, you know, I also want to say that some of the most spiritual moments of my life have been during sexual encounters. And I really want to offer that to people because for those of us who are interested in spirituality or self-improvement, I have had really transcendent moments. I think those moments come from feeling incredibly safe, feeling full of your sensitivities and full of who you are and really able to just lose yourself in a moment where you feel like you're connecting to something bigger than yourself. And it's just such an empowering process. For me, sex, because of how much shame is around it and because it's literally the creation of life, it is one of the most empowering and transformative processes we can go through to kind of change our sexual story and feel more empowered. And I want to encourage everybody to feel really, really empowered and that what you feel is right. Start with your desires and the sky is the limit. Awesome. You just brought up something there that makes me want to ask you another question. So <laughs> I don't know if I should or not, or if I should let the audience go. But when you when you brought up the topic of um, that sex is there to to create life, um, I know that the Christian community uses this a whole lot as a reason why um, homosexuality shouldn't exist, mm -hmm. why sexual fantasy shouldn't exist, pornography, masturbation, all mm -hmm. of that should not exist because sex is only supposed to be about making life. Um, mm -hmm. You have something really brief to say about that because I find that <laughs> yeah, really, really brief. Sure. So, you know, <laughs> when we're talking about creating life, 
you know, our definition of that, if we're talking about simply the conception of a physical life, it's very limited. But if we're talking about, you know, sex has the potential to create freedom from shame, right? That's creating more life. To create creativity, more sensation. Literally, like life is about feeling, sensing, right? The more I sense, the more alive I am. The only thing that doesn't sense is what's dead. So that's creating more life. A mind-blowing sex is creating life. It's not just about, you know, the physical form of, you know, a baby to create hair, which that is also a form of life, but it's everything. It's feeling free. It's feeling more alive. That's creating life. And so I want all of us to know that when we have great sex, we come alive. And that's what I want. We need more life and more of you here on this earth. Absolutely. That's powerful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. All right, Mike, um, I'm going to let you go. I know you've got, I'm sure, a lot more to get into for the rest of your day here. So um, thank you again for coming on the show a second time to share with us. I'm sure everyone will enjoy this this episode. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and hey, who knows? Maybe we have you on a third time again in the future. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Um, and until next week, ciao. Hey, thank you for listening in this week. I hope you enjoyed the content of this episode. If you did, please subscribe or follow this podcast to receive the newest episodes every week as I bring them to you here on the Connect Your Health to Life coaching channel. Ratings, reviews, and comments are always appreciated. These allow me to know more of what my listeners would like in the podcast and allow for more people who may be searching for a podcast just like this one to find the Connect Your Health to Life coaching channel. If you would like more information about me and the work that I do with my clients one-on-one, then please visit my website at www.slch.ch. Again, that is www.slch.ch. You can also find me on social media on Instagram at SethLusk underscore coaching. Again, that is SethLusk underscore coaching. And on Facebook in my free Facebook group community called A Healthy Life Connection. We would love to have you in the group, and it's only three membership questions that you have to answer to join. And again, it's entirely free. And if you need any further information or just want to say hello, feel free to send me an email directly at slusk.health at slch.ch. Again, that is slusk.health at slch.ch. Thank you again so much for listening, and I look forward to our next time together. Ciao.